The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. This week's episode of From the Archive takes you back to August 2022, where David and guests discuss the then-recent search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents. The episode also features originally members-only content, so if you want more like this every week, please become a member. Enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are joined today by Ed Luce, of the Financial Times, who looks like he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Is that true, Ed? It's true, I'm afraid. Well, you've been gallivanting about this summer, so you should visit your home periodically. Also joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, who's also in what vicinity, the Washington vicinity? Alexandria, Virginia. Beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. And we are joined by the always lovely O. Serencion, who is one of the uh, leading nuclear experts that we know, often published author and commentator, who is maybe in Washington. Where are you, Joe? I am. I'm just outside Washington in Tacoma Park, Maryland, about 180 degrees around the circle from Rosa. So the you two are outside the Beltway. Are you outside the Beltway, Rosa, or are you still inside the Beltway? Both Rosa and I are inside the Beltway. Both Alexandria and Tacoma Park are inside, yeah, outside the, the district. Yeah, outside the district, yes. Um, okay, so there's a lot to talk about this week, and I want to start in a place we don't normally talk about things on this podcast. Usually it's our Thursday province, and that is an aspect of domestic politics, I guess, of domestic law enforcement. Because I want to talk a little bit about the national security implications of the recent visit of the Department of Justice and the FBI to Mar-a-Lago and the uh, subsequent revelation that they brought back a bunch of classified materials and the subsequent assurance by the Trump team 
that the you know, the president had magically declassified all of those things and that that somehow mattered. And I just would like everybody's reaction to this chapter, whether you think it's significant or whether it is legal small ball. What do you say, Joe? I think it is significant. Overall, I've seen many, many experts argue that the declassified or declassified nature of the documents doesn't matter in the technical implementation of the laws. The Espionage Act, for example, dates back to 1917 before we had a classification structure. So it doesn't reference government documents being classified or non-classified. So technically it doesn't matter. But politically and almost sort of in the, in the Justice Department's thinking about the case, it does matter. If, in fact, Trump could make the case that none of these documents were classified, that he had magically sprinkled declassification dust over them, and they were all now declassified, it would stay the Justice Department's hand on how, how hard they go in pushing the case. That, so technically, there is, it does matter. I think sort of politically, or structurally, you might say it doesn't matter because what you basically have here is Trump once again treating the presidency as if it was a CEO position that he created, that it was his, that all of this was his, that the staff was his, the Justice Department is his, the generals should be his generals, the documents are his documents, and all this other stuff is just bureaucratic nonsense and has nothing to do with governance or the rule of law and smashing right through these norms and, uh, and, and established guidelines as if they, they don't apply to him and he's trying to get away with it. And as far as the Republican Party is concerned, they side with him. He has gotten away with it in the Republican Party. They no longer care what Donald Trump does. They will support anything he says, anything he, he does, apparently without limit. Yeah, apparently without limit, Rosa, the Republican Party. I saw a thing today that said Donald Trump's rating relative to other potential Republican candidates went up 10 points as a result of the FBI rating his house, discovering classified documents there. Maybe that's not surprising, but what, what is your reaction to this? It is so strange. We all remember Donald Trump saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his, his supporters would not turn away from him. And, you know, it turns out he's basically right. I do find it just bizarre of all the unlikely champions of the marginalized feeling white working class and white rural middle class to have a guy who talked about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, um, rich, spoiled New Yorker, married multiple times, personal life, uh, an embarrassment, tabloid fodder for years known as basically a con man for him to become the guy who so many Americans seem to think is is sticking up for them or somehow stands for the little guy against the feds is, is truly bizarre to me. I mean, I really don't understand it. I mean, I, you know, I look at Trump and I and I think, how can anybody look at him and not see what I see, which is a a con man, you know, a con man who's not very smart and basically a horrible human being. And completely irresponsible, but it's 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 mysterious and depressing. I, I it's just impossible to know what impact this will have. It'll be interesting to see what happens today in the various primaries that are taking place today as we're recording. Obviously, that may give us a little bit of a sense of which way the winds are blowing. 
But, you know, I, I mean, I think Joe's I think Joe's right. You know, the, the debate about, well, can he declassify these is sort of misses the point in a kind of a deep sense. You know, the point is presidents don't do that. They don't do that because that's an irresponsible way to act, whether it's a criminal way to act, whether it actually endangered American national security remains to be seen and depends in the first case on various technical questions. But it really doesn't matter. You know, who does that? It's like that. I sort of feel like Donald Trump is like every the walking id for a lot of Americans, you know, that yeah. sort of he misbehaves in ways that they fantasize about misbehaving, but can't actually get away with. And that there is something that appeals to people about watching this guy just trample every single rule, trample every single norm. But I, I find it totally baffling. Speaking of the walking id, the uh, Arizona candidate, uh, Carrie Lake, said that Trump's advantage was his BDE. How do you feel about that, Ed? You, you ask me to spell out BDE? Are <laughs> <No. laughs> you, duck, you ducking that one, David? No, Carrie Lake wants you to ask your kids BDE. <laughs> this, this, this was, ask your kids, she said. Oh, great. Let's have a conversation about BDE with your 10-year-old and 12-year-old. Good idea. Yeah, just such a perfect opportunity to broach this necessary topic. <laughs> BDE, well, that kind of um, sums it up. I mean, if tonight's, I guess some people will be listening to this after Tuesday night's primaries, but, and therefore I might be embarrassed by predicting that Sarah Palin is going to do well and Liz Cheney is not. And uh, that ought to tell you everything you need to know about the pro BDE wing of the GOP and how well it's doing. You know, I'm, I'm at a loss to add really anything insightful to what Rosa and Joe have said, other than once you've got past all the technicalities of what Trump may or may not have breached, it's anybody's guess what his motive was. It could be as trivial as, well, I was the president, as Joe was saying, it's mine. All mine. It's the corporate papers of of the Trump organization, except they happen to be nuclear secrets. So it could be simply just the five-year-old's impulse. This is mine. Or it could be something very nefarious, which is, look, here's some leverage or some something monetizable. Or he definitely wasn't t- taking documents as material for his memoirs. I mean, we can even for his ghostwritten memoirs, we can be sure of that. But what what really strikes me is just how massive the spectrum is from utterly sort of childish tantrum level to really sort of m- mortally wounding to national security level. And it could be anything on that spectrum that motivate, motivated Trump to take these documents and then refuse to give them back. Well, uh, it couldn't really be anything because one possibility would be that he would take them home and pour over them because he loves to read about policy and uh, is fascinated in the, the workings of the government and wants to do better the next time, right? It's probably not yeah. that one. It's not that one. And it's not prepping for his memoirs. Um, it's not right? It's you know. He doesn't chat about the nuclear triad over dinner to Melania either. Um, so we can be sure of that. Sorry, Joe, you had your well, If we could just speculate a little bit, because, again, we don't know for sure. But why would he take nuclear-related documents? Why would he want to keep these? Well, it's not for knowledge. It's not because he thought this was critical to his understanding of national security. It's probably because he thought there was some monetary benefit to doing this. I mean, this is what motivates Trump in, in, in many of the things that he does. And when you think about that, there are two nations where Trump has a financial interest, 
political ties, maybe psychological ties, that would be interested in U.S. nuclear documents, and those are Russia and Saudi Arabia. So my operating hypothesis is that that's what these documents pertain to, documents that would be of interest and possibly could be of yield financial benefit to Trump by supplying these kinds of documents, either directly or by reference to one of those two nations that he has long-standing ties with. That's where I'd be looking. I think that's a possibility. But Rosa, the other possibility is that Trump actually has LDE. And, you know, he likes to show off to compensate for just how L his LDE is. Don't (laughs) don't you think? Well, yes. I mean, I think that anybody who's got as much braggadocio as Donald Trump, you know, there's some tiny, tiny little ego, little Mm -hmm. sense of self-esteem and tiny, tiny lots of things in there, you know because other people don't need to act this way. But, and I, I don't think that's inconsistent with going back to the just, he does it because he wants to, you know, it's the old, it's, it's, it's grab him by the pussy. When you're a star, you can do whatever you want. You know, that I, that's just Trump's rule in life is I get to do what I, what I feel like doing right this second screw Joe Biden. It's all mine. I want them. I'm taking them. I, I you know, Joe, I, yes, there absolutely are more nefarious possibilities, um, you know, secret mm-hmm. plans to monetize them, secret plans to aid and abet America's enemies. My money would be on, it's as simple as I'm five years old, I do what I want and screw everybody else without a whole lot more thought than that. That being said, I think I think there is another sinister theory, I suppose, which which is not about Trump having come up with some elaborate plan to make money or or give secrets to our enemies or anything, which is just that his inner circle thought to themselves, I bet we can find some way in the future to make use of these documents in a way that will, you know, embarrass Joe Biden or look bad somehow or will make Trump look good. You know, that and that and if that involves cozying up to our enemies as part of that, that's fine. Uh, so I, I just don't I really don't credit Trump with enough ability to plan in advance or enough sophistication to have any truly nefarious plan of his own, frankly. I think it's all impulse. Yeah, so let's go back to this one other question, then I'll move on from this. But Ed, one of the most astonishing aspects of this is the unanimity of the Republican Party in defending Trump. That, you know, leaders from across the party have said, the FBI should be defunded, that the Department of Justice should be investigated, that Merrick Garland should be impeached, that it's outrageous that they would invest, you know, look into this thing, even with each passing level of revelations that suggest that Trump did something that would throw, if any of you guys did it, you'd end up in the slammer instantaneously, Right. You know, reality winner took one page of a document, ended up getting, what, four or five years in jail. And I'm not defending her or criticizing her. I'm just saying that's an example. But, you know, the Republican Party, when I was a little boy in a covered wagon going across America, they were sort of known as a national security party. And here it's like, who cares about national security? Who cares about these? You know, you have Ron Johnson going. Hey, Mar-a-Lago seems like a pretty safe place, even though the spies are arrested there, you know, and there's no security. The Republican Party just doesn't seem to care anymore. They didn't care about Russia. They didn't care about 
selling out the country. And now they don't seem to care about this. Is this real damaging to them? I mean, it's obviously damaging to the country. Or do they get it? Do the American people in their base really not care about this stuff? I mean, one of the best selling T-shirts and badges at Trump rallies is I'd rather be Russian than Democrat. And it's an interesting thought experiment. Interesting twist on better dead than red. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting thought experiment, you know, to follow what Joe was saying, that if this were the worst case, you know, seditious scenario of Trump actually thinking he can monetize some of the nuclear secrets, how it is that Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio would, would react then. When January the 6th happened, all of these people, all of them condemned what happened, described it as, you know, a terrorist attack on Capitol Hill and so forth. For a week or two afterwards, all of them had um, what I would think of as a fairly mainstream commonsensical reaction to the assault on Capitol Hill. There wasn't one minute of that after the, the Trump publicized the, the, the search of Mar-a-Lago. Not one minute. They fell behind his, this is a politically motivated witch hunt, this is the Gestapo, and all the other sort of wild darts he, he threw at the darts board in the days afterwards. There was not one, one, one moment's pause. So weirdly, it's getting more Trumpian by the second. What motivates them? Liz Cheney is a 93% voting record with Trump. You know, there isn't a, there isn't a new weapons system she's voted against, a tax cut she hasn't voted for, an abortion she hasn't opposed. She's as stars and stripes as you get. And yet she's, she's going to be ejected. So what is conservatism now? What is yeah. republicanism? It's, it's not a about cult. ideology, clearly. It's, it's not it's about ideology cult. anymore. It's a cult. This is how a cult behaves. This is how the sole party in an autocracy behaves. It's, it's, not, it's not how a party in, in a party democracy behaves. And, and there is no precedent for it, you know, unless you're talking about very splinter parties like the, the Communist Party of, of past decades in the West. There is no precedent for this kind of cultist total obedience to the leader. Can I just add something here? Because I do think this week, the, the reaction of the Republican Party after the raid marks a new stage in the transformation of the Republican Party into a real authoritarian party. All the signs have been there. And we've all read the articles about the signs of you know, fascism, how fascism develops in a country. But one of the elements that's been missing has been the use or threat of violence to enforce the, the, the party's agenda or the, the leader's agenda. We saw it in January 6th, but as Ed pointed out, the party as a whole reacted negatively to that, at least for a couple of weeks. They didn't react negatively to this. And you saw the embrace of violence, at least rhetorically. And we saw the implica- implement, implementation of this with two cases of basically kamikaze attacks on, on institutional structures, the attack on the FBI, the and the attack on the Capitol, where people were ready to sacrifice their lives. And in the case of the Capitol assault, did sacrifice their lives, ramming a car into the Capitol, then, then the guy shooting himself. This is a new level, and the embrace of violence, the talk of war. David, you and I had a Twitter exchange about this. Not an actual war, but the justification of war, of, of this being attack on Trump. We had to defend him about the, the Trump being the victim of this, and we had to all rise up. This is a new dangerous phase, and I'm afraid this we're still in it. We're seeing it ascend. There's no sign that this is going to level off or that the Republican Party as a whole 
is going to retrench from their embrace of violent dissent against the government. You know, Rosa, the Twitter exchange I had with Joe, he had thoughtfully cited an article and was talking about this issue of war. And I, of course, sort of did the Twitter thing, which was, you know, I sort of skipped over the article and made the point I wanted to make anyway, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, there's a lot of this talk about civil war in the U.S., but there's not going to be a civil war. Most of these people are couch potatoes. There are a few thousand of them who are nuts. They can cause a lot of damage. Let's call them for what they are, extremists, terrorists, and, and identify that threat. But the right, you know, Trump seems to think the right can rise up and bend the U.S. government to its will. And, you know, that can't happen, can it? Yes and no, or no and yes. I mean, I mean, I, and we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes. I, I think it's quite clear that the majority, the very, very large majority of Americans do not want political violence. Um, it's quite clear that the very large majority of political of Americans would be dismayed and appalled by increasing political and are dismayed and appalled. It's quite clear that the majority of Americans are dismayed by the increasing partisanship alone. I don't think the support most Republicans have for Trump is deep enough that people would, in fact, say, OK, I'm taking my gun and I'm putting my life on the line and I'm going to you know, join the local Trump militia and march on Washington with my gun. I, you know, I think that's absolutely correct. At the same time, that doesn't give me that much comfort, because as, as we know from comparatively country after country, you don't need to have widespread support to start an insurgency that can be extremely effective and can intimidate everybody else into not necessarily actively participating, but going along, you know, not doing anything to stop it. You can have a pretty tiny group of people. And if they are ruthless enough and organized enough and well-funded enough, you know, they can cause real calamities, political calamities, because there's so much about, I mean, not to (laughs) get too highfalutin, right? There's so much about civilization altogether that depends on everybody's voluntary compliance. And even when we think about the level of security at federal buildings, you know, the White House, the Capitol, it's actually not that great, right? It's, it's more than we wish it had to be, but it's not that great. We've seen over and over, people can get to those places if they try hard enough. And even bozos, even crazy individual bozos can get frighteningly close, right? And, you know, what would happen if, if you know, a thousand very well-armed people, you know, suddenly launched a raid on the White House, the Capitol, whatever? I don't think you need more. I don't think you need that many, you know, maybe not a thousand, maybe you need 10,000, right? But but you don't need a hundred million. You know, you just need a small, well-trained, well-armed group of fanatics and what history also tells us is that most people, even though they may not support it, they're not going to do anything about it, you know, unless they, because they're scared, they're going to go along to get along. And if they feel frightened or intimidated, whatever, you know, they're not going to stand in the way. So, so I, it gives me comfort on a sort of psychological level to feel like, okay, there are not that many Americans that are truly crazy and violent. But it doesn't actually give me that much comfort when it comes to thinking about possible calamities in this country, because I I think you you don't need a lot of people. And we have a couple of minutes before our little mini break that we take in the middle of the episode. I'm I'm just wondering what you think of this. You've been traveling around outside the country in the past few weeks. And when I travel outside the country or talk to people outside the country, one of the questions that I've gotten 
more frequently in the past year than I've ever gotten is, could there be a civil war? Could the United States come apart at the seams? Is it on the verge of breaking? Did you get the question? How do you answer it? Yeah, that, that question does arise more. I mean, you know, I think of myself as fairly pessimistic or sort of flinty-eyed about um, America's prospects. But when I'm in Europe, I, I, I could almost... You know, that when you said you were fairly pessimistic, Rosa smiled. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. so happy when people say You call that pessimism? <laughs> <laughs> But, well, uh, you know, even Rosa, you know, in, in certain European conversational situations I've been in recently might, might feel almost Panglossian. There's deep skepticism about America, which is a problem and a subject all of itself. It's a sort of life force all of itself across the Atlantic and in other parts of the world. But I was thinking of, you know, in terms of picking up on what Rosa just said, if Gallup had been polling in France in, in, in 1789, it wouldn't have found strong support for the guillotine or Robespierre. If it had been polling in Moscow and Petersburg in 1917, it wouldn't have found a Bolshevik majority, nor for the mullahs in 1978 in Iran. It's always small minorities of vanguards, as Lenin calls them, who bring about violent change. So I don't think that's as much comfort to me as it might be to you, Rose, although I, I mean, you did then qualify your point. No, no, it's no comfort to me at all. It's just my pessimistic. It doesn't take a lot of people. No, that's fair enough. But if we're talking about small minorities changing things, it's five people on the Supreme Court I'm most worried about, maybe six, maybe five, depending on the vote and the day, and what they're capable of. And particularly, you know, if it comes to slightly more bona fide, slightly more plausible looking electoral disputes in 2024 that go up to the Supreme Court. That's what worries me most. And that's not the sort of conventional civil war situation, but it's the kind of, it's the kind of scenario that could, that could lead to a, a much more dramatic situation. Well, we have to keep talking about this because this is a big issue. It is an international issue. It is a national security issue. It's not just a political issue. For those of you in the public, general public, who are listening to this for free, great. We welcome you. But if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you need to be a member. We've uh, got a lot of great bonus content for our members. This would be a great time to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and commit to, I think it's five bucks a month to help support what we're doing. Membership has been growing steadily throughout this year. It's been our best year ever by far, by far. And we want to hopefully keep it growing because I think the next couple of years are going to be absolutely critical to have this kind of insight uh, as we go through the midterms and then head into the 2024 elections. And so we hope you will join us and become a member. Don't put it off. Do it now. That would be great. And then you can listen to the rest of this. For those of you in the general public who have not done that, we'll uh, see you again soon sometime. For those of you who are members or about to become them, we'll be right back. Joe, I, I want to move on to another subject, but at listening to Ed, you know, I was struck to see some comments recently from people who I respect who go, well, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis wouldn't be that bad. And so, you know, what, but, but, you know, Ron DeSantis is acting more fascistic in many ways than Trump did, you know, setting curriculum, banning books. He just passed or is talking about passing a law that says that if you were a military veteran, you could become a teacher, even if you don't have a college degree or know anything about 
teaching. He's removed people from office because they don't agree with his policies. He's sort of set up a state militia that reports directly to him that he can use in a variety of different ways. You know, he's not as gross as Trump is in some ways, but in some ways, he's, I find him much more chilling. So am I, you know, overreacting? No, I agree with you. He doesn't have Trump's charisma. He doesn't have the benefit of having spent over a decade in people's living rooms, being a celebrity the way Donald Trump has. And of course, he's not a billionaire. So he misses some of the trappings that have given Trump this, you know, great leader aura and, and, and charisma about him. But he is more methodical. He is sinister. I mean, it's just chilling. Like the official that he dismissed, the prosecutor, was an elected official. The people of Florida elected this person, and DeSantis, the governor, dis- dismisses him. He is telling school children and teachers what they can and can't talk about in school. You know, he's taking some of these cultural issues, weaponizing them for the purpose of implementing a deeply regressive con- conservative agenda and backing it up as you say, with the embryonic development of of a private force, the one that can that can implement and back up his uh, his agenda. No, this is deeply disturbing. I would not take Ron DeSantis lightly at all. Let me change the subject a, a little bit here. We're uh, in the week that is one year anniversary of America's departure from Afghanistan. Some of us who are here on this conversation felt that that was the right thing to do. And it was handled, relatively speaking, in a good way. And some of us do not. But a year later, we are out. We've refocused elsewhere. NATO is bigger and stronger. We've been shown real leadership. The argument that U.S. leadership is atrophied seems to have evaporated both in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, The number one guy in Al-Qaeda, al-Zawahiri, was uh, uh, eliminated. Rosa, does the departure from Afghanistan look different to you a year later than it did then? Not really. I mean, I think I'd say now the same thing I said then, which is clearly Afghanistan was not going to do well if we got out after we got out. Equally clearly, Afghanistan was not going to do well if we stayed and we didn't really have the power to change it. We spent 20 years trying to create enduring change and clearly we didn't have the ability to do it. And there, you know, this is the how long will you bang your head against the wall if you're not able to accomplish anything that we, we spend a lot of time, still too much time in the foreign policy world saying, oh, we should do this. But talking about doing things, you should do things that you have no power to do is, is stupid and you end up wasting money and you waste people's lives. So I do think the withdrawal was the right thing to do. But I, I don't think it was handled as well as it could have been. I think I think it was the manner in which we did it created unnecessary suffering and chaos. And obviously, you know, on sort of the grand scheme of things, I suppose you might say, well, compared to the last 20 years of chaos and suffering and the chaos and suffering that occurred in the last year, a little more or less is, is you know, relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But but I, I still feel like there are people's lives. And, and if you have the ability to make things even a little bit better, you should. And, and I, so I, I don't think that we should be saying, oh, you know, they did, they did absolutely the best anybody could do. I don't think they did do the best anybody could do. I don't think that that makes the Biden administration, you know, terrible people. 
But I think it was a screw up. I think it was handled really badly and, and lives could have been saved if it had been handled differently. You know, it's over, you know, it's done. Not much that we can do about it right now. But uh, I think that rather than saying, oh, well, we couldn't have done anything differently, it's more useful to sort of say, okay, we're not in Afghanistan anymore, Afghanistan anymore. But if some similar situation comes up in the future, what lessons can we learn from this so we don't make the same mistakes in the future? I mean, I agree with you, David, that, you know, mostly because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the situation has moved on, NATO has expanded. So the idea that this damaged long-term transatlantic relations and intra-NATO relations is definitely wrong. A much bigger issue, a much bigger threat um, has superseded that, and the West has cohered really quite well. That doesn't really change my views about the wisdom of withdrawing. I mean, some of the justifications, quite apart from the execution question, I'm talking about the substantive decision here, some of the Biden administration's justifications for this, that there was nothing they could do, do about it, for example, that the agreement had already been made. In other words, this was a Trump legacy they could do nothing about, just didn't ring very true. The idea, you know, other, other Trump legacies were very easily repudiated. This was a shabby deal with the Taliban that cut out Kabul, that cut out the, the government of Afghanistan. The idea that there would be a lot of American deaths, well, there was about 5,000 people left in Afghanistan, and there hadn't been a single death, US death in the previous 18 months, combat death. The Afghan National Army clearly depended on that small US presence of five or so thousand, between five and 8,000, a kind of counterterrorism presence and the air support it was getting. Once that had gone, it was a match of time before the army collapsed. But that was all that was necessary to keep it together. And then some of the forecasts that this was Taliban 2.0, that they would protect girls' education, that it would be a different kind of Taliban, that it wouldn't play host to al-Qaeda, for example. All of these have been belied. So I think the light footprint was a very low cost. I think the betrayal to thousands and thousands of people who worked for the Americans, for the British, for others, and who were left there, many of whom have died, is, is something that can't be measured you know, in dollars or, or even in foreign policy. But that was a fairly shameful, shameful thing that is not massive in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't repudiate the Biden administration's overall foreign policy, but I think it's nevertheless regrettable and was avoidable. I'm sufficiently on the record that saying things that are slightly more supportive of the approach that was taken and thinking that the outcome, while not ideal, was perhaps the best one could expect in these circumstances. Uh, so I'm not going to really dwell on that. I'd like to shift the subject, Joe, if that's okay. Because we have you here and because we have your special expertise, I've been tracking fairly closely what's going on in Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia in Ukraine. The Russians took it over on the 4th of March. They've uh, fortified it. They've mined parts of it. They've actually shelled parts of it. They use it now as a fire base, trying to provoke a response back from the Ukrainians. And, uh, you know, in the course of some of the shelling, fires have been created and people have rightfully pointed out that, you know, fires that spread could affect cooling facilities, which could lead to a meltdown, could affect stored spent fuel or other sources of fuel, which could lead to problems. And that, in fact, it's a form of kind of 
Russia having taken this giant nuclear power plant hostage, mm-hmm. it's kind of nuclear terrorism where one of the options for the Russians is essentially to turn the place into a giant dirty bomb. Mm-hmm. It's not in their interests, not Ukraine's interests, but that doesn't mean they won't do it. They've done a lot of things that weren't in their interests. How worried should people be? Very worried. You should be very concerned about this. I agree with your analysis. And David, I read your article that you published in the Daily Beast today, the day we're doing this podcast. You, you capture the seriousness of the situation well. Like Trump, Putin is doing things that no one has ever done before. These violate all norms, all previous standards. No one has ever seized an operating civilian power plant before. No one has ever occupied that. No one has ever turned an operating civilian power plant into a military base and then shelled the surrounding area with the artillery and ammo stored at that, at that base. No one has ever tried to operate a base at gunpoint. Putin is doing all these things. The intention appears to be at some point to actually annex the power plant, like the land surrounding it. Remember, this is operating near the Donbass region to the north of the Crimea region. I think the plan is to reconnect that facility back to the Russian power grid and steal basically the plant and steal the electricity. But in the process of doing that, there's also this other agenda, as you say, this kind of nuclear terrorism, this kind of risk. And I think it's an act of desperation on Putin's part. He is in trouble. This, uh, This invasion is not going well. This second phase of the offensive, the first phase being the attempt to seize Kyiv and end the war in, in weeks, that failed. Now the second offensive is stalling. The Ukrainian forces are mounting a determined and successful defense and may even be able to mount some counter-offensive. Just today, they blew up another ammo dump deep inside Crimea following their successful attack on an airfield deep inside Crimea. So things are not going his way. So he's trying to scare the West off with this nuclear terrorism. Look how terrible things can, can, can get. The trouble is he's doing it in such a way that he's not, it's not really under his control. There are shells raining down all around the power plant. If one of those shells pierces the containment facility, which are reinforced concrete designed to withstand a small plane crash, but no nuclear power plant is designed to withstand an artillery barrage. That could lead to a meltdown that could, that could can spread radioactive material over thousands of square kilometers. If he hits one of the fuel ponds or the fuel storage facilities, again, major release of, of radioactivity. If the power lines go down or the water supply goes down, all those things can happen. And finally, if in the course of the operation, these, these poor Ukrainian operators operating at gunpoint make a mistake, a three-mile island type mistake, you could also see severe contamination. So the red lights are are blinking. Officials are warning us at the highest level, the head of the IAEA, the head of the United Nations, stop, demilitarize the site, let inspectors back in. Zaporizhia is a ticking nuclear tie bomb. And unless we take urgent action, it will detonate. It's a story that people need to follow. It's why I wrote about it today. Other people have written about it. I encourage people to think about it. One of the problems is that there are very few avenues for the West that seem to be pursuable in the near term. And so people are are kind of relying either on the kindness and wisdom of Vladimir Putin, which are both non-existent, or the success of the Ukrainians in actually pushing back the Russians. and. 
which could in fact provoke him. So this is a very, very dangerous situation, which is not getting coverage for a lot of the reasons we've spent the rest of the episode discussing. In any event, we will keep tracking it, uh, hopefully with the benefit of folks like uh, Joe and 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 the rest of you. We'll also keep tracking all these other things and uh, look forward to continuing these conversations. Thank you very much, Rosa. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks very much to everybody for listening. We'll be back again soon, uh, and we look forward to joining you then. Bye-bye.